Everybody dies. I'm your host, the Wolverine, along with my intrepid companions, Jarhigo. Greetings. And C-Lab forever. And salutations. <laughs> Enthusiastic as always. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, folks. Can I change mine to Eugene Chafor? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Well, you just did it right there. Eugene Chafor. Uh, welcome to the podcast, folks. This week, we are talking about the 1997 classic science fiction film by Andrew Nichol, Gattaca, starring Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, Jude Law, and a whole host of other wonderful and talented actors. Let's start the show. And Cabby from Escape from New York. And Cabby from Escape from New York. High level. Chad. This was always a really good movie in my memory, and it, it held up quite well. Mm. It's kind of like the most terrifying dystopia, in a way. It's more scary than a 1984 or a, you know, Terminator fucking Rise of the Machines kind of sci-fi plot. I just It's just such a terrifying premise. And uh, I, I find myself torn, but I also find myself terrified. And I enjoyed it. Mm. Excellent. Short, sweet. Let's move it over to Jar Higo. Hated it. Hated it. Hated it. No, I didn't hate it. Um, my appetite for dystopia is not very large, mm. but uh, this is a. Uh, it is definitely science fiction. Mm. It's the classic definition of science fiction, but it's. I'm curious about the world of Gattaca outside of the uh, eugenics scheme, but the space exploration side uh in you know getting into rockets in uh double-breasted 40s <laughs> yeah, suits pretty sweet uh with lots of hair gel and stuff and zipping around the solar system i think that's very interesting um and this little story is sort of like a it's like a sh- like I, I think of it as like a short story in that universe you know mm. um that sort of revolves around the periphery of all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's a great film. It's got a great cast. It's very well acted. It's beautifully shot. It's very well put together. But it's, you know, a little on the slow side. And I really don't know how to categorize it. I, I enjoyed it. And I, I think it's a great movie. But at the same time, part of me feels like it's just not very interesting. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. No, it doesn't. But <laughs> It's a psychodrama. You know, like... Maybe not even a psychodrama, but somewhere between like a drama and a psychodrama. I mean, this is one of my all-time, all-time favorites. I get what you're saying. I think it, it is definitely not a typical science fiction film. I mean, there are no pew-pew lasers, none of that. And, and, and you're right, in the, cl- in the sense of the classic definition of science fiction, it's great. It's talking about social issues in a futuristic backdrop. And it, and it keeps being relevant because racism is always relevant, you know? And it keeps changing. And I, and I love that about it. And I love the aesthetic of the film. There's a, it's very... It's your vibe, totally, man. 
Yeah, and it's very well polished and well appointed. You know, there's a lot of detail went into this movie, and I think it helps to make it what it was. You know, not only that, the the story is well written and it's very well acted, obviously, as well. A really good cast, too. So I hear what you're saying, Ben, no doubt. Um, if you're looking for <clears throat> action, this is not the movie for sci-fi. Mm. This is It's methodical. It moves at a slow, steady pace, you know, and um, but the story is great. And I just I absolutely love it. I've, I've seen this movie close to 100 times. It's so good. It had been a while, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying, Benny. I think I hadn't considered it from that vantage point, but I feel like if you were to show this to somebody who had not seen it before now, they probably would feel very similarly, probably because a lot of this ground has been covered in the 25 years since the movie came out or 20 years or whatever. No doubt. I saw, I heard a clever um, comparison. Well, I heard something clever on YouTube where they said it was like a proto Black Mirror episode, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to view it. Because it kind of has that vibe, but it's a feature length, you know, so. I think um, I I agree with you. And I I liked, um, I liked your dystopia comment, Ben. I mean, it's, I think I'm definitely sort of getting a little dystopia fatigue. (laughs) Now that we live in one. (laughs) Well, yeah, that too. Exactly. But, you know, it's, this movie clearly was an influence and paved the way for a lot of the dystopian stuff that we've seen in the last 20 years. Mm. You know, I mean, this coming out in 97, that was 25 years ago. So I think you're right, Chad, to your point, you know, it's like, we've seen a lot of this stuff in this movie repeated, but it probably came from this movie or this movie was one of the earlier uh, progenitors of some of those ideas. You know what I mean? Mm. And it pulls from some classics, you know, like aesthetically it has something of a Fahrenheit 451 vibe, you know, like the retro futurism stuff. So Mm -hmm. I found myself much more drawn to the story than maybe the desire for a fast mover. If a story is good enough for me, like I'm cool with slower movies. Um, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you you hate slow movies, Benny, but in this particular case, maybe in this particular mood, it was not quite there. No, I have nothing against slow movies, but I, I don't typically watch them again. Yeah, that's fair. Um, if it felt slow to me the first time, it feels glacially slow to me the second time. Sure. I don't think that, um, I mean, for me, this is, I don't know, I'm with Chad. It's the story's so good that, and, and it's immersive. You you get drawn in and you're you're invested in the world. So, you know, watching it again doesn't hold any problem for me. It doesn't slow down as I go. In fact, I actually thought, yeah, it's a good story, but I was really riveted the first time I watched it because the entire time I was, you know, freaking out thinking he was going to get busted, you know, like it really has that it keeps you, you know, on sort of on the edge of your seat even though it's slow paced on your first watch because you're so you're invested in a character and you want to see him succeed. But, you know, there's just all this, like the worst possible things keep sort of happening mm. and you're constantly, it's a, you know, similar thing to like watching Dexter, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, once you start rooting for Dexter, you're just like, you know, you're like, Oh fuck, he's going to get caught. Oh fuck. He's going to get caught. Oh my God. So, um, and he comes so close so many times, just like in this so many times. Yeah. So, and, and, kind of similar to Dexter by like the end of it. I was like, okay, like seriously, he hasn't been caught yet. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> so, like, on my third watching of this movie, I'm like, okay, he hasn't been caught. You know, um, I don't know. So, just knowing what's going to happen sort of makes me, like, less inclined to want to go for the journey. Mm. It is a great story. It's just... Well, that's a really good point, man, because we've this this has come up more and more as we've gone through this show and as we uh, creep slower towards 100 episodes is the difference now versus when we first saw it. And this movie, I hadn't actually thought of that because I like this movie so much. And, I, you know, this is like a once a year watch, at least for me. And mm. you're right. Like, I was just remembering my feelings as I watched it the first time. And it is. It's like great tension, you know, really anxiety inducing you know, wondering if he's going to get caught. How is he going to pull off the next thing and the next thing as they go through the investigation in particular, you know, and Alan Arkin keeps suggesting, you know, different things um, that are more invasive and intrusive in terms of, you know, testing to see, testing to see if they can find this invalid, you know? So yeah, a lot of anxiety and all of that sort of thing and just like kind of rooting for him and, you know, I forgot what that was like when I saw it the first time. It was so riveting, you know. Mm. It had been it had been a good 10, 15 years since I've seen it. So I remembered the like broad strokes of it and I remembered the ending and stuff. So there weren't any surprises, but it was kind of semi-fresh for me. Yeah, that's good. Which helps, you know, like, I don't know. I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, you just kind of recall stuff and it remains, you know, delightful as opposed to monotonous. It's sometimes mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. like a. I don't know, like like you said, sometimes watching movies that I have a fondness for, similar to your previous comment, I think in one of the Hyperion episodes, Benny, where you like tend to not revisit some of your favorites because you don't want it to kind of become lesser as a result of revisiting it. I saw- and by that, you mean hate it? Well, not necessarily, but like it, it's, <laughs> I just have that fear that's like my, my really amazing memory of it will be will be brought back down to reality and it's like a... I kind of wish I just kept on to that really great memory, you know, that kind of thing. Rose-colored glasses and stuff. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, not to digress too far, but uh, I was literally thinking about listening to the audiobooks of Hyperion yesterday, and I was like, yeah. You got no nauseous? Fucking <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I did. I was like, that's not going to happen for a long time. Yeah. And I, I almost started crying. Yeah, that's fair enough. But the nausea overpowered my tears. That's it. <laughs> Just to clarify, I don't, my, my opinion of the movie hasn't really changed. It's just my appetite to watch it knowing what's already, yeah. you know, sometimes that just happens. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Some movies, once you know what the, you know, how things pan out, it's not as fun to watch again. I mean, sure. any movie is not as fun to watch again, I don't think, but eh, whatever, scratch it. Unless you're doing a study or no, something. No, 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 that's a really, it's a good thought, man. You're right. I mean, that's a good, um, it's a good talking point in general. It's well, like, go ahead, Chad. I often get uh, asked by people, like, they they are surprised when they hear that I read books more than once or watch movies more than once. And I, I'm baffled for the opposite reason. I'm like, you only watch it once or read it once? Like, Well, that's what I think. I don't know. It's just different varieties, I guess. I, I mean, I like the thought of, you know, like Ben just said, like, once you watch it the first time, it's going to be different. Yeah. It's like the sixth sense or something, like the big twist. You're like, oh, I get it. Okay. Certainly in a film like that or like in this one, you know, where there's like, you know, he's a lot of dodging and then there's a, you know, somewhat of a reveal at the end. But I I am definitely like you as well, Chad. Like people ask me the same thing. They're like, why would you watch that that many times? I'm like, and my response is always this. You like music, right? Yes. 
And how many times have you heard, you know, whatever, Led Zeppelin 4? About a million. Exactly right. So what's the difference? The only difference is that there's a visual component as well as an audio component, you know, and you watch stuff over. There's stuff that I picked up on movies on watch number 20 that I never noticed before, you know, and I love when that happens. Mm. So there's always, you know, you not always, but there's there's new stuff to be mined on multiple watches, you know, and if the film's good enough and warrants that, yeah, it's great. And if it's not, you just you're not watching it 20 times. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a messy topic because there's movies that I only want to watch once, like uh, mm-hmm. Requiem for a Dream, and then there's movies that I'll watch a hundred freaking times. You know, like Requiem for a Dream is a really good movie, but I never want to see it again because I wanted to fucking kill myself after watching it. You know, so yeah, you, uh, what were you gonna say? Yeah, I was gonna say I would just add really quick that I feel like there's just so much we're bombarded by so much now, and there's so much to watch that my habits are starting to change, even, Kev, with music. I tend to not listen to things over and over again anymore, especially new stuff. I kind of discover stuff, and I'm like, oh, that's great, and then I move on to something else. Mm. And sometimes I'll come back to it, and other times I'll forget about it for years, you know? so Yes, that's a great point. like just the way we consume things, I think, is is changing, and it's more like a sort of – a la carte rather than um, always going for the, I mean, there are always going to be classics for me, but I wonder mm-hmm. if like for people are, you know, for like your kids, are they going to have classics yeah. or are they going to be constantly moving on to the next thing? Well, that's a, no, that's a whole nother great topic right there. Uh, Cause that's been like right in my face lately. Um, and I've mm-hmm. been reading a lot about that, but the, I, I agree with you. Um, one sec, Chad, there, there's, there's, I, I know what you mean about the music. Like I, I actually have to like, consciously like make make myself isn't the right phrase but make myself listen to something again you know what i mean like i'll listen to it and i'll love it and it's the programming now that you know you just move on so i have to like force myself to listen to it again like case in point with the new stallones album like i remember listening to it and i was like god this is so good and then it's like it just leapt out of my brain and it was like a day or two later, I was like, oh, wait, yeah, you, you got to listen to that again. And like, I kept having to force myself to do it. You know what I mean? Once I did, I was like, oh, this is great. But yeah, I totally feel you 100% on that. Same thing with like podcasts, you know, films, all of that. It's in one ear and out the other a lot of times. Like I watched somewhat two or three Gattaca YouTube videos today just prepping. And like before the show, I was like, oh, I don't remember any of those. Hmm, there you go. Watched them three hours ago. I <laughs> have no idea what they were. yeah but um to the music point i got my like spotify year and review bullshit a month ago and like my top songs of the year i think like the number one was like four listens you know what i mean so wow it's just like exactly like you said you know just you just don't revisit stuff as much it's much more common to to just i don't know the fire hose of new content regardless of medium is is really a thing now yeah, I, I I think the other thing that I do with music, I just was remembering because like we talked about Lisa Belladonna. We've been talking a lot about, you know, retro wave and synth and stuff like that here. And Ben recommended the Nick Hexum, George Clanton thing, mm, which is and good. We've talked about the mother, uh, Lisa Belladonna and the mothership. And I got those. I got four tracks. I got the two mothership tracks from Lisa Belladonna and the two clanton and hexam tracks so the other thing that i'll do is because there's so much content it's like 
like I spent 30 minutes browsing for something to watch the other night. And that was just on one streaming service. Mm. And I looked up and I looked at my watch and I was like, holy shit, like a half hour had gone by. So the, the opposite problem is that I'll just like, if I was like, I want to listen to music, I just put those fourth songs on because they were right there. They were accessible. And I didn't want to go through the other anxiety of trying to decide something to listen to, even if it's from my own back catalog, you know, of stuff that I've heard so many times. So Mm-mm. there's the flip side of it. No doubt. We talked about that a fair bit in our music episode a million years ago. <laughs> it would be, I don't know how to kind of approach this other than maybe like eugenics. <laughs> like I feel like one of the key elements of this movie is such an interesting space that's fraught, but mm. just the idea of gene tailoring and, and then like, the context of me watching it now with a couple of kids, one of which was IVF and, and what that means. And it's just, it's such a fascinating, interesting space that I, I'm like, I'm into, but also afraid of. And also like, yeah, it's just a wild space. And I think it would be worth talking about for a bit. I I totally agree. I mean, this movie in a general sense, like when I was thinking about um, sort of high level topics, it's like, there's duality, there's racism, there's eugenics, there's, nature versus nurture or nature versus biology or technology or however you want to put it, you know, like the, there's, the, he covers a lot of stuff in this movie. Go ahead. Uh, it was more just a ramble. I'm curious if you guys had any thoughts about the space. Um, you know what? Remind the listeners what eugenics is. <laughs> eugenics. And me. Verb. Uh, Jesus. I don't know how <laughs> – I don't know how much we need to get into like the nitty gritty of it, but it's essentially like, yeah, see that? I think that's, I think that's the fraught. I think digging into eugenics is the fraught part of this because Mm -hmm. it has a history with the Nazis and a history with, you know, really brutal racism and sterilizations Mm -hmm. and all kinds of really fucked up stuff. So I, I would, you know, if anyone's unfamiliar with eugenics, it just, you know, there's a Wikipedia hole that you could check out. And I, I, I definitely kind of feel like that cul-de-sac is maybe a little bit of a dangerous one for, for the purposes of this particular topic. But I suppose the thing that I'm interested in from this viewing is if you could tailor your genes or your offspring's genes, would you? And while on the surface you'd watch this movie and say, fuck, no, I'd never do it. Like on the flip side, um, there's this test called the harmony test over here that both of my kids got tested for when they were in utero. And it's like tests for like 20 odd common issues like cystic fibrosis and down syndrome and stuff. And, and mm-hmm. it like mm-hmm. helps a parent in, make an informed decision about what they want to do. And, and watching this movie just kind of made me think about like, I don't know, like, is it okay to do a harmony test? Is it bad to do a harmony test? Is it, it's just such a crazy space. And then you mix in the idea that like, even if you banned it in one country, another country will, you know, do it. And so it's just like a really crazy space and technology is such that we're quickly approaching the realities of all of it. So that was kind of what I was thinking about. Interesting. The only thing I'll add to it, at least at the moment, is that they do it in a very interesting way in the movie is how they they presented it in such a positive light. So in that scene when they go to see the doctor, Blair Underwood, you know, he's super calm and he has like 
the perfect bedside manner and his voice even, the timber of his voice and the whole thing. And he explains how, you know, these children are you. They're just the very best of you, mm. you know, and we've, you know, screened out all of these traits that are considered bad. And, you know, so he presents it in a very like uplifting, positive light, which sort of makes it more twisted because we see the results <clears throat> of what adults do with it throughout the course of the story. Yeah. You know, uh, so I, I found that interesting. Do you have any thoughts on the space, Benny? Just in general, I'll refer to dystopia and my distaste for it. You know, gene therapies um, on the living and, and on, you know, on uh, embryos or whatever could be a very positive thing. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to create a class structure and, uh, you know, mm. a type of, you know, genoism or whatever they call it in this movie. Um, you know, it could, but it doesn't have to. It also doesn't have to be done the same way. I mean, like I said, the, you know, as far as I know now with something like CRISPR-Cas9, the possibility of gene therapy of adults is possible, you know, yeah, so yeah. if genetic disease and things, you know, could possibly, I'm not sure if we're doing it just yet, but, you know, the potential for genetic disorders and genetic disease to be fixed in adults even is, is a possibility. So it's not even like the way this is panning out is that, you know, it can only be done to a, to an embryo and, you know, if you're if you're already an adult and you're you're flawed, then you're fucked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but just in general, the the idea of the dystopia and the oh the bad science thing did then people did bad stuff with it and now we're fucked. You know, like there's nothing we're we're living in a dystopia. You know, and there's nothing that we've scienced. There's no shitty situation we've scienced our way into that we're not gonna get out of without sciencing our fucking way out of it. So. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyways, I just that's that's how I feel about it. Hmm. I really like your uh, parlance in that uh, in that spiel. Science, aren't we? <laughs> so yeah, the eugenics and the genoism, like it's scary stuff. But I just you know, if this is a cautionary tale about well, we shouldn't go fucking around with stuff like that because you know this is going to happen. Like I just think that's really short sighted. And mm. you know, you know, any every technology has the possibility to be. Used for good or used for bad. You mm. know, I, I think definitely we got to decide to start using it for good, uh, or, or, you know, all over. But um, anyway. No, not not anyway. Like, that's a really great uh, point, as usual. Yeah. Like, that, there's, there's that's lots exactly. Of... Go ahead, Chad. You talk first. I insist to go. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of geopolitical implications and all that kind of stuff that's just too broad for the purposes of the show. But I suppose just it was... The more I thought about this viewing now that I've gone through some stuff with the kids that I've got, the more I kind of, I don't know. I don't know if it, it doesn't make me second guess myself, but it it just kind of puts an interesting new layer on things where, you know, we did, my firstborn is, um, my firstborn was IVF and my secondborn was au naturel. But the interesting experience from the IVF thing is like, they do the whole, you know, kit and caboodle and like you've got x number of embryos and they're viable and this one's the best one and we think you should do this one and you know it's it's just interesting that even in that basic science format you're you're already selecting and and then you can do this harmony test stuff to figure out if your kids you know got some horrible you know illness or whatnot in utero and then 
the obvious implication is if if it, they do that the pregnancy would be terminated or whatever so it's it it's really fascinating in a way that i hadn't considered before just how how real a lot of this stuff is and i definitely agree with you that it doesn't mean we're bound for the same dystopia benny but it was just kind of an interesting interesting to experience it this time around whereas 15 years ago i was you know still fucking partying a lot and stuff so it's just a fascinating kind of space i guess no it, it really is man and I, I mean we went through this, you know they have similar things here chat so you know yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about certainly with children but at the same time i think the thing that really resonated with me was what you just said ben about you know dystopian future but it doesn't have to be that way you know what i mean like I think in 1997 and maybe up until 10 or 15 years ago, you know, it's like you talk about dystopia and it's like a cautionary tale and all that sort of thing. But it's like, you know, like you said, we need to grow out of that. And you're right. It doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, the the really key ingredient, you know, which is, is something that they touch on in a lot of science fiction stories is, you know, human growth, human growth of consciousness, man, because that's really what's going to get us to the point where we make the better decisions, you know, that the technology doesn't have to be used that way, that it can be used, you know, that we, we, we heeded those cautionary tales, you know, or we were just better and we made the better decisions. You know, I really, really like that comment, mm. that, that idea. Mm. Just, just to be clear, I'm not like condoning eugenics or. You know, no, no, of course not. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm condoning the use of gene therapy to alleviate suffering in people, not not necessarily to create a super race or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm speaking to what you're saying. I, I'm speaking to the whole idea of like, you know, it's always presented in a very negative light, but it's like, you know, that technology isn't all bad. You know what I mean? Mm. A lot of A lot of the things that we have aren't terrible in and of themselves. It's that we misuse them because human beings are just, poor you know like poor people and not being responsible and not being selfless enough with them and not thinking should we before they think could we you know which is a a a huge question surrounding technology and science in general Mm. go i think selfish is the key word there where in my view like one of the kind of frameworks that i use just in terms of my philosophy towards humanity is like the duality of animal and man where like we have base biological constructs, like the way our brain is actually physically built where there's like the animal core and those animal instincts. And then we have like the actual humanness wrapped in the prefrontal Mm -hmm. cortex and stuff. So you end up with like, I've got mine, protect my own, reproduce, reproduce base instincts of the actual meat that we inhabit. But the selflessness of, of how do we ascend as a species is is kind of the human element of it. And, you know, what I'm hearing from what you guys are saying is like, if a technology is utilized societally in a selfless way, you know, society can ascend. And if we use it in a selfish way, Absolutely. it descends, you know, like it, it feels it feels like this movie's an attempt to kind of touch on like what it would look like if it descended in a way that's kind of like camouflaged as no big deal versus like a Terminator annihilation style thing. But Mm-hmm. It it feels like all of these dystopias are playing on those fears of when everyone's selfish and the I got mine kind of bullshit that we uh, that we're living in these days. True. There's also a component of just, you know, humans are terribly short sighted. Mm, like we're not yeah. very good at 
you know, projecting years and years into the future. So sometimes it's just bumbling, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, you know, pollution and, you know, uh, components that, that could be leading to climate change or, you know, more the result of us sort of, you know, plodding along using something because it's convenient and good for us and, and you know, actually is good for us at the, at the heart of it. But, you know, there's the second component that nobody thought about. Second <laughs> order know? effects. So I think it's, it's like, Part, partially, you know, human nature and being selfish, you know, being selfish versus being uh, um, altruistic. Um, but then there's also just, you know, being short-sighted, you know, and not having the ability to think about things uh, moving forward into the future. I agree. I think it's it's all those all those things apply for sure. Big topic, but super super interesting space. Yeah, not um, just to use this as a little bit of a segue or what you just said, Chad. Um, you know, the other thing that it it touches on, or at least it leaps out to me, is, you know, the difference, the duality of, you know, bioengineering, like the perfect person, right? So Anton is the best of those two parents. Mm-hmm. And Vincent is 100% au naturel. And, you know, with the bioengineered child, it's like you're guaranteed to succeed. You're guaranteed this, you're guaranteed life expectancy, health, all of this sort of thing, because we have tailored you that way. And then somebody like Vincent comes along or any one of the borrowed ladders as described in the film. And it's like, they circumvent all of that stuff. And not only do they do the same, but they totally knock it out of the park, even more so than, than those people could do. And you know, so the idea of nature will always be nature and nature conquers and nature will always find a way is um, is very present in the story. And I love that because, you know, you're, you're rooting for Vincent the entire time or Jerome or whatever, mm. you know, and I, I, I love that concept and I love seeing that, that nature triumph, you know, and it's, you know, your heart only – there's only one in 100 chance that you you will die when you're 30, you know? And it's like he says when he's younger, right before he leaves his house or, or leaves home is, you know, there's there's a chance nothing may be wrong, you know? And it's really mm-hmm. about having the, um, the, I don't know if mental acuity is the right word, but the, the sort of presence of mind and body to be okay with that or not and have to... And be so worried about it, you know, that you have to get your kids tailored and get all of the, quote, bad things out, like, that nature put in there. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, because you really see the dad, um, the dad's anxiety, like, in that scene, you know? He's like, you can't do that, you know? And he's like, but there's a chance there could be nothing wrong. And she's like, you know, the mom's like, you're never going to be anything but, you know, cleaning. And he's like, well, maybe, you know? Like, so there's... That theme is jumps out at me for sure. Determination versus giving up. Well, yeah, and really just the natural way versus the unnatural way. And, you know, kind of hearkening back to the last segment of the conversation, like, you know, like what Ben was saying about short-sightedness and human foolishness. And I've touched on this in the past. Like the arrogance of humans is astounding to me. You know what I mean? To, to even think that – we could start messing around with genes and do it, quote, better than nature is – it just blows my mind. We think sometimes that we are better than nature and that we can do it better than nature. And it's it's folly and foolishness. But we'll still give it a whirl. No doubt about that. And, and you kind of got to give it a whirl. Like 
the the folly and foolishness is the same thing that old mate's parents said to him and he's like you know what i'm gonna do it anyways like it's this very similar idea it is yeah you're right what we what did you have Ben? well the flip side of what you're talking about kev is that um these you know the the genetic superhumans the the manipulated embryos the ones that are you know supposedly the best of their of their parents genes the two examples that we see most prominently in the movie one being vincent's brother anton and the other being um um actual uh the other being jerome morrow um Mm. these people are really flawed Mm. um in in a lot of ways and they're it just seems odd that it's it's almost as if the people that have been given the advantage genetically have rested on their laurels and they don't care to put any effort in to succeed. And that's that's where Vincent's yes. able to come in with, you know, his desire being the, the major thing that pushes him over the top and, and allows him to compete. So it would seem that like uh, maybe that's a thing, you know, that that these people that are given the advantage are just, you know, they know they have an advantage. Therefore, they are arresting on their laurels to a degree. Mm. Um, it also seems to create this degree of uh, depression and such. So it's like clearly things weren't thought very well through in the in the manipulation of genes because you, you know, or perhaps like in focusing on the, you know, like we don't very well understand what happens if you change one aspect of a person to something positive if that creates a deficit in another area because things are interconnected, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like they've focused on giving, you know, Jerome, like, you know, this amazing heart that like Tony Shalhoub is talking about him, like, you know, going through a wall and you know all this stuff. But like, clearly like he's extremely depressed and he tried to kill himself and he just doesn't really care about his own life that much. So, you know, it's, it's like they, they focused on creating these uh, physically perfect people, but you know, mentally they're they're whacking something absolutely man and, and just to add on top of that ben the, the part that because they're engineered so perfect and they're told that and they know that that when he gets the silver medal it absolutely destroys him to the point where he walks out into traffic you know what i mean right like he, he says jerome morrow was never meant for second place you know what i mean so you're also creating a an emotional and a psychological uh malignancy where you can't deal with anything but success and that Mm. is as much of a problem as the opposite problem like that kids have today which is like you know all the screen exposure and social media exposure is creating anxiety in them that that is literally an epidemic according to some um professors and doctors now absolutely and they do (laughs) Dr. Thanks. Stallone, nice to hear from you. Thank you for to, to adding some levity to this uh, <laughs> heavy heavy duty segment. But you know they they can't deal like even with any any kind of minor criticism. I've seen this firsthand. You know, uh, so it's super super interesting, man. Yeah, and Gore- that's what I like about the. But this is what I like about the movie. Well, one sec, Chad. There's. It's just got these layers to it, you know what I mean? And it really makes you think about those things. And that's what I think is makes this film so good and why it's one of my – probably on my all-time list up there in the top 20, easy. Yeah, it's a good one. The bit where good. the the lead scientist dude played by Gore Vidal is like no one goes beyond their potential. Like it's it's so yes. clearly a flawed statement. And it so clearly indicates the societal structure based on the genetic hierarchy is just not 
Mm. It's just total bullshit. <clears throat> it is. But at the same time, you could see how a society would buy into it. And then the whole point is, you know, it's the drive. It's, it's you know, borrowed ladder Vincent's drive that, that pushes him over the top. Totally. And I think, uh, Ben, what, what you were saying, your, your last thought, I, I would have added the director to that as well. Because, like you said, these are, these are incredibly flawed people. And he's the same way. Like, he seems like this polished pinnacle, you know, an older man of this, you know, eugenics uh, gene tailoring thing that they're doing now in society. But, you know, come to find out at the very end of it, is that he's as much of an animal as everybody else. He's mm. the one that kills the director. And it's not like he poisons the guy or, you know, snaps the guy's neck. Like he, and I think this was, inten- this must have been intentional when he wrote it. Like he brutally beats the guy over the head with a computer keyboard. Mm. I mean, like you see the keyboard and you see the director that died briefly in a couple of flashes, you know? So it's interesting that he, his thread wraps up with now that they can't stop the mission, I'll tell you whatever you want. But I had to beat the guy like an animal to get what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Like that that was crazy. Especially after he says, check my profile. You won't find a violent violent bone in my body. Yeah. Or if I do it like if I do it like Gore Vidal, he goes, Check my profile. You won't find a violent bone in my body. But uh, you know, hearkening back to Dr. Stallone, I I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to insult this movie here, but like there's some serious parallels between this and Demolition Man, I find. No doubt. With the with the like, you know, falsely perfect society and whatnot. So you're not you're not denigrating this film by comparing it to Demolition Man, because them, thematically, there's a lot of similarities, certainly in that. I think that's actually one of the coolest parts of Demolition Man is you know, the way they engineered the future. I think the problem with that film was that some Joe wanted to make it an action movie. Bill wanted to make it a science fiction movie. And then somebody else was like, let's throw in Dennis Leary and all this crazy shit and throw it in a blender. And it just turns into, I don't even know what, a meat grinder. Anyway. A masterpiece. Let's throw in Rob Schneider. Yeah. And yeah, let's throw in Rob Schneider, Dennis Leary, <laughs> and Wesley Snipes. And then, you know, you put that in a blender and it's like, what do you get? You get that movie. You get fucking movie magic, Kev. Movie magic. Yeah, movie magic, baby. So I can uh, I can thread the needle here if you want where – Please. You were very disagreeable when I mentioned that the gentleman playing the Jolly Green Giant song on the piano in the Taco Bell at Demolition Man was Dan Cortez from MTV Sports, Mm -hmm. which is verified. (laughs) And I want to bring that up because his co-host, Gabrielle Reese, is the trainer in the jogging room in this movie, and I loved that. Oh, shit, you're right. It is her. Wow, nice one, dude. Yeah. That is a that's a nice needle threading right there. MTV so. Sports co-host Gabrielle Reese. That's right, baby. She's a badass, by the way. Married to Laird Hamilton. They do some cool stuff. Yes. Laird Hamilton, the surfer. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. Now we're back in the room. The running room. Jerome Jerome the Metronome. Jerome Jerome the Metronome. I didn't realize that this was Jude Law's American debut. How about that for a random little thing? 
How about them apples, Chief? How about them apples there, bub? Because I knew that uh, it was the first time I saw him was in this movie. Mm. And um, I thought he was perfect. Dude, he's great. He, he, he really embodied the sort of privileged guy that gets knocked off his pedestal, you know. And, and the beauty of him and his performance is that you we, – we clearly can see the change yeah. over the course of the film where he comes to accept his situation and respect what Vincent's doing and respect him as a person and respect him as a natural birth person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they seem like they genuinely come to, you know, go from having a symbiosis in the beginning – to genuinely loving each other. Mm, I'll mm. even go that far, you know. And they're they're sad when he's leaving, you know, to go to Titan. And it's super sad when he gets inside the incinerator and just blasts himself. But it fit. It works for the character, I think. He's got a great it little definitely arc. definitely does. I, I'm glad that he got inside the incinerator and did that, you know, because it, it just added more layers to this already awesome story. Who would kill themselves by fucking burning themselves <laughs> alive? Jesus Christ. It's pretty rough. Well, as I've contemplated taking my own life a lot lately because <laughs> everything <laughs> sucks, I've been through the gamut of what would be good, quick, and easy and what would just be gruesomely painful. It'd be pretty like, rough. That, that is, that's definitely at the top of the list of taking way too long, kind of like you know Mustafa in Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here. I'm just very, very badly burnt. Exactly. I liked his um his Jude Law's ability to be a super angry, privileged person. Like when he yells at the guy, the cop who's talking about him outside, and his mm-hmm. ability to kind of like bullshit the cop when he pulls himself up the staircase. I, I think like he was perfect for that. Give me your number. What's your fucking number? <laughs> it's just. He's just, yeah, perfectly cast. Evidently, the casting director saw him on on Broadway, and and that was how he got the role. So it's pretty cool. Killer, man. He's so great in this. I just absolutely love him. Yeah. And he's great opposite Ethan Hawke, too, which uh, I don't know how much I knew of Ethan Hawke's previous body of work. I, I was a little bit too young for the Reality Bites stuff. I don't think I saw oh, this until a few years after it, after it came out, so. He was in Explorers with River Phoenix when they were, like, 12. Yeah, right. Wow. Did I just blow your mind, bro? Is that the one where the kids make the spaceship? Yes, with, like, the yeah. garbage can and all that other crap. Right. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I barely remember it, but yeah, I remember same. that bit of it. There's a sci-fi being movie. I psyched to see it and then kind of being disappointed when I did. Mm. Mm. I, we might need to revisit that, actually. That, that might be a good candidate for the show. Um. Anyway, I kids films, yeah, eighties kids films, exactly. Flight of the Navigator, do, uh, I vote for Cloak and Dagger. There you go. Oh, Dabney Coleman, dude, yes. And, and who is the kid? Henry Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I Jack think. Uh, sorry, so, what's that? Jack Flack. Jack Flack, right? I think. Uh, sorry, Chad, didn't mean to hijack your. Uh, <laughs> no, that was what I was going for. I was teeing you up, Te- teeing us up. I, I, that's where I first saw Ethan Hawke. Or I know that he was in that. I think the first thing I saw him in as an adult was hmm, it wasn't Reality Bites. It was something else. I just don't remember what it was. So I was I was well familiar with his work. Is my point by the time this came around, and I 
And you're taking an injection death, it sounds like. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like we have a <laughs> The fact that you knew just by the cadence of my voice is the best part of what just happened. <laughs> and we desperately needed a death, so we finally got one. Yeah, yeah. You know, since then, I'm going to have to start taking a bunch of show notes coming up really, really soon here. Why's that? Oh yeah, we're gonna everybody Kevs. Because yeah. every time there's an everybody Kevs, I have to like put down, you know. <laughs> that was a good list last movies week. Movies and uh, try to find references to fifteen different characters that this one right. particular actor has played, and then that <laughs> usually leads to a side avenue about another movie that a director did. And <laughs> I think I think your seventy odd uh, point list last week was. Might might be a record. I've had a couple that were in that space. Uh, yeah, Kev. I wanted to like murder you. Like we were getting, to- <laughs> we were coming down the home stretch, and I finally thought I had written down like the last like. I was like, okay, this is it. I'm done. I'm done with the show notes. We're like in like the end of the show, and you started to brought up something else. I was like, God damn it! <laughs> No, it's not like you know. It's not like we're thinking about this stuff when we're recording, or that it's you know. It's just like while well, I was taking the notes down, I was like, "God damn it, <laughs> no!" I had like closed my notebook and everything, put the pen away, you know. <laughs> and then, and then on top of that, I think I sent you a, a message on WhatsApp, and I was like, "Oh, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah." Um. Uh, just, just getting, getting back, getting back to Ethan Hawke. Uh, the, uh, the first thing I remember him in, I just, I did just eject and look him up. It's Dead Poet Society with Robin. Oh Williams. yeah, that was yeah. excellent, uh, excellent movie. Eighties <clears throat> movie. I was definitely aware of him when I first saw this movie, but I can't quite remember where from. Maybe it was from that. Maybe it was from Dead Poet Society. I need to revisit Dead yeah. Poet Society. I don't remember that at all. It's uh it's a, it's an interesting uh, sort of white privileged kid boarding school movie but kurt kurtwood smith is in it and he's as evil as ever which is great well in a, in a subtle in a subtle piece of irony here benny in a game off moment our current record is 78 links and that was in the uh stranger things season three show and the the irony is is that that show is uh only be possible because of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman meeting in this movie and producing their daughter, who was in Stranger Things season three. Everything is connected. Yeah, that's it, huh? This guy's had a very interesting um, career. He makes interesting movie choices. Yeah, man, as an actor. But he he was in um, Dead Poets. He was in Alive. White Fang was another one that was a little kind of more high profile when he was younger. The Before trilogy. And that yeah, the before trilogy, uh, which is a, I didn't realize that was a Linklater trilogy. Yeah, same. I love Richard Linklater. I think the other one that's Actually, adjacent to this is Predestination, which I believe the creators um, are huge fans of this movie. So it's kind of interesting they have a similar aesthetic. Yeah, Predestination is great. Did you guys ever see Daybreakers? It was kind yeah, of like a futuristic yeah. vampire movie. Yeah, I think I think Sam Neill might have been in that. That was that was good. And of course, Training Day, great movie. You shit-pushed Yes, that's right. That's where that comes from. Anyway, so uh, let, let's move on from Hawk. I feel like we're in like a, a Hawk 
uh, gravity well that we can't get out of. Yeah, Ben's just being quiet so that we'll stop putting things that go in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan Hagen with Thurman met on this one, got married. Uh, she That's right. Was, uh, gave birth shortly after the movie came out, I believe, to Maya, who is from Stranger Things, season three. Yes, nice. Very meta uh, connection there. I think that uh, Uma is... Uh, this is a really great showcase of her work. Mm, definitely. She has this she has this really quiet intensity in this movie that's great. Um for her in this movie, it's about what she's doing in the negative space rather yeah. than uh the the dialogue. Because it's it's very sparse and super minimal, especially for her character. And there's just um not not a brooding intensity, but an intensity there that I, I just love and it, it really comes across great um on the screen. So uh love love this piece of work for her. Might might be one of my favorite things that she's done. It's definitely good, yeah. She uh, embodies the tightness of the society very well in the character. Very wound, very tight. Mm. Yeah, and there's an and and again, you know, like I said, duality. Like there's great duality between her and and or a great dynamic between her and Ethan Hawke, and just in terms of like he, you know, he reveals to her that he's a he's a a vitro birth, and you know they have a similar heart situation like she has a somewhat defective heart like him there's there's all that and and i like how she you know just accepts him for who he is at the end and she doesn't really care you mm. know which is fantastic like when he's sitting against the car and gives her the hair and she just goes oops blew away or the wind caught it yeah she's uh this might be one of my favorite things that she's ever been into mm. she's really good in this really really good in this i still think pulp fiction is probably my number one for her but it's very different it is very different. She's just so fucking cool as Mia Wallace, but different movie. But she's also she she's she's well appointed for this role, like yeah. the costuming and the look and that sort of. She looks very perfectly polished and appointed and put together, and I don't know, not not posh, but somewhat. Yeah, that's a decent word for it. Yeah. Posh fits. Let's segue. Who else? Um, I really wanted to hear Benny drop a. Snake, how you doing? Earlier. <laughs> you can still do it, man, because we haven't gotten there yet. I actually did a lot of, uh, I ended up going down a little bit of a hole with him. You last don't night. say. Reading about, <laughs> reading about Ernest Borgnine. He, I was so excited when I saw him in this movie originally. He's, you know, great example of a, a great older actor, classic actor, seasoned actor who can just take a small part and just make it so memorable, man. You know, like he's. He's super memorable as the the cleanup manager, you know, as the the cleaning supervisor. He's great, and maybe it's just him the way he is, like his voice and all of that stuff. But uh, I, I just love that he was in this as, as a supporting character. Like this movie is similar to um, True Romance in the sense that like all, all of the supporting players are were either heavy hitters at one time, or they were heavy hitters, or they were going to be heavy hitters later, you know, like Borgnine, like Xander Berkeley, who played the doctor. You mentioned the the flat foot, you know, the you fucking flat foot scene with Jude Law before. And the, the guy that played the flat foot was, you know, it was, it was Dean Schrader. I mean, not Dean Schrader was his name in Breaking Bad, but. Yeah, the cop, the DEA dude. Dean Nor- Oh, it's Dean Norris. That's it. Dean Norris. It wasn't Dean Schrader. Schrader was his last name in, um. Breaking Bad. So anyway, yeah, Dean Norris played the uh, the cop that he berates. But that that's a it's a great um, a lot of, a lot of great 
uh, cast member. Even um, Maya Rudolph was actually in this movie, and so was. Uh, and then you know the dad was played by Elias Coteas, who's been in a ton of stuff. Really, really great. Blair Underwood again. You know, same thing. Tony Shalhoub, Alan Arkman. I feel Alan like Dean. Ernest Borgnine and um, use your brain. Do it. You can do it. The director. Gore Vidal. Thank you. I feel like Ernest Borgnine and Gore Vidal were great choices just because they're that different generation of actor and they kind of fit the aesthetic of the film in a way. Mm, very much so. You mean that the people fit the aesthetic of the film? Yeah, the, the just the actors of that generation were like, – obviously Gore Vidal was more of an intellectual of that generation, but they fit the – 50s brutalist architectural you know suited and booted classic car aesthetic the retro futurism because they they had the retro you know they brought the retro acting chops in a way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no you're right it was a clever choice very that Ernest Borgnine he's retro so retro so is Gore (laughs) yeah I love the little moment with uh Ernest Borgnine where um Vincent comes down the stairway and they like see each other and they look at each other for a minute. And he's like, Oh, let me take that for you, Mr. Morrow. You know? Mm. And there's this sort of like this little moment of like, you know, you're not sure whether he recognizes him, but you kind of think he definitely recognizes him. And it's sort of like a little like, you know, nod wink thing. That's interesting that you say that. I always took that still to this, these last two watchings that he doesn't recognize him. I guess this is a cutting room floor scene where he, where it's clear that he did. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know if it's the same scene, just longer, or whether it's another scene that makes it clear that he knows what's up. Because it plays to that, like, you'll see me on the other side of the glass comment earlier, so. Right. Mm. Isn't there another scene in the movie where he's clearly sort of covering for him? There's the other scene in the movie where he gets yelled at for cleaning up, and he's like, it's just trash, you know? Right. But I don't know if there was anything else specific. Oh, I never thought of that, man. You think that that's what he might have been doing when he said... When he picked up the trash and he goes, oh, this is just just trash. Well, yeah, yeah. It would, it would be considering that scene that was cut, yeah. Hmm. He knew what was going on and he was trying to help him along. Like the doc. Like the doc. Yes, Xander Berkeley. Love that guy. I definitely didn't pick up on the doc knowing the whole time from the opening scene with the doc. You know, where he's like, let me tell you about my son sometime, you know, like. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember that from my from my previous viewings, and it was I, I like that they set that up so early, so that that like somewhat implausible element is is already you are already aware of it, you know. Well, that's the beauty of it is that when he says that in the beginning, you can't really tell. They leave it vague enough. Yeah. That later, you can make the connection after he sort of does the reveal of saying that you know my son's the same way. He's a big admirer of yours. Mm. You know, but it's like they leave it vague enough that you don't know. Yeah, you right know, up until the so invalid great. shows up. Yeah, exactly. Guys that are right-handed don't hold it with their left. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And he all, you know, the other thing that's interesting too, just a, a sort of a somewhat of a little diversion away from the cast for a second, is that like when he tests him at the end, and his invalid um, ID co- picture comes up, like it, it, it's sort of like the whole system is starting to crack apart. You know, like it's not just that Vincent has achieved this, you know, feat that was considered impossible, but, you know, that that there's more people that don't believe in that and that it's it's starting to somewhat unravel is what I was kind of 
You know, I kind of feel that sometimes when I watch it. Yeah. Does that make sense? You know, like that between that and the. Also, he didn't, he didn't, he never was doing it on his own. Yeah. Like he always had people that were, that were sort of helping him along behind the scenes. Right. But, but I'm also saying that like that, that whole idea of, you know, the genetic superior, our superior seemed like it was kind of coming unglued by the end of the movie between the director and then them having the last swimming race and um, the doc, you know, all that stuff. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm curious if it's meant to just un... I'm I'm curious if it's meant to reveal the story to the viewer that, like, in a way, from a storytelling perspective, it makes more sense to have it look like it's unraveling or it's getting broader and broader and there's more and more helpers as the story progresses. Um, as opposed to it being like, you know, over the course of a month or whatever in the movie space, the society's falling apart, you know? Like, I suppose it's just a way to ratchet tension as opposed to it being like a representative um, deterioration of society over a short period of time, if that makes sense. Like, as a storytelling device is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. 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 Because I like that he's being helped by other people. I like that it seems like it's a hollow societal construct. As opposed to he being the one guy that's going against this like evil empire kind of blow up the Death Star. Ah, oh, this is Star Wars death kind of thing. Oh, dude. Oh, you did that for purpose. No, I didn't. But there it is. You climbed into the cremation chamber. <laughs> I didn't push yes, the did. button. A little metal. I did. A little silver metal on. I did. You know what I mean, though. Like I kind of like that it's I not. Did. It's not like the one good guy versus the evil empire. It's like the one normal guy versus this really stupid societal construct and everyone that's not in this elite team is like this is kind of bullshit and they're all they're all helping each other out. I kind of I think that that's a a great layer. I like that. I like that layer yeah. too. That's it a, also that's changes it, it changes the story from like, you know, if, if that hadn't been there, it would have been like this uh, sort of like meritocracy propaganda. Like, mm. see, if you try hard, then you'll rise to the top. And, you know, it's like, no, he actually had help all along the way. You know, mm-hmm. this was not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps story. It was a story of, you know, someone giving it a whirl and, and people sort of propping him up. Yeah. Along the way. And, and that's that's. On top of how incredibly meticulous and careful he was, which yeah. would be so difficult, man. Yeah, no doubt. Cleaning up your essentially your mess from your body that is constantly falling off of you, you know, and then spreading somebody else's around, you know, as a as a sleight of hand. It's crazy. I, I loved that whole element of the movie. Yeah, even the opening uh, credits with the what turns out were like five foot long pieces of wire that they were dropping with a high speed camera to make it look like hairs and stuff. I remember, I will never forget when I first saw this movie, seeing that, that, uh, super close up of all this stuff falling and just being like, what in the hell am I looking at? (laughs) Who else? Alan Arkin. I think we touched on him, but he was great. Um, Alan Arkin is always great, but his body of work is incredible, man. And, um, this is no different. Again, smaller part, but he really knocks it out of the park. Playing the sort of uh, subservient vitro to the superior Lauren Dean, you know, yeah. or Anton, rather. They played off each other really well, those two. Really well. You said it. 
we touched on Dean Norris. And then again, like it, it was, I guess in 97, Tony Shalhoub hadn't quite, quite reached like the level of like respect that he certainly carries now. I mean, he had done wings, but <laughs> wings. <laughs> <laughs> I think he also was in quick change too. Bliff to me. Bliff to me. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll stop i'm gonna just put that down as a death. i just saw mm. in a uh random everybody kebs moment earlier today that he was the voice of master splinter in one of the ninja turtles fucking movies which i was just like okay yeah oh, man. The, lube was? the lube the lube friend of the show the lube the 2014 ninja turtles movie Wow. Which, like, I have never had a desire to watch that, and now I kind of want to see it. Oh, wait, never mind. Megan Fox is in it. I, uh, I've i never seen any of the Ninja Turtles movies. You never Even saw the Vanilla no. Ice Go Ninja Go Ninja Go? Come on, dude. No. I'm picking no, that then just to fuck with you. No, that's fine. Go for it. I mean, I, I even Corey Feldman couldn't draw me in, and I was a huge Corey Feldman fan when I was younger. I couldn't couldn't draw me into those movies. Johnny Knoxville is Leonardo's voice in this. I'm gonna shut up now. All right, we need to we need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, we need to do a movie that we just completely just eviscerate, fucking annihilate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Um, all right, so let's let's wrap up. Well, go ahead. No, oh, no, no. I'm down with the uh, the. Yeah, T M N T. Let's do it. Let's do the Megan Fox one. Oh I'll God! Just, I'll just add that uh, I always liked Tony Shalhoub, but I really fell for him in uh, Galaxy Quest. Mm. I, don't, I don't know if that's where I fell for him, but he was awesome. Tech Sergeant Chen. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like a lot of people haven't seen or appreciated Monk, which was a fantastic. I haven't. I've heard great things, man. It's so good and the and the actors are fantastic. It's not just Tony Shalhoub. The captain is Ted Levine. Yeah, never we, seen him. We know and love from Put the oatmeal in the fucking ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he was uh, Ted Levine was a captain in that and he's great. They play great together, man, because Ted Levine's like kind of plays a straight guy. It's great. Check it out. Anybody at home, if you haven't seen Monk, check it out. It's worth a watch. Should we uh, should we transition into like notable? Just about to say that. moments and stuff like that. Bits and bulbs. Bits and bulbs. Bits and bulbs. Bits and bulbs. Yeah, go ahead. Who wants to go first? I'll throw this in just because we haven't done it earlier. I was not uh, familiar with the director of this movie and never gave two shits. And finding out that it was his debut film was pretty impressive. Oh, this guy is awesome. He's a Kiwi and. Um, He's he's I I feel like Andrew Nichol is on excuse me the same level as um uh, who's the guy that we love that did devs Alex Gar not not Alex yeah Garner. Alex Garland Garland Alex Garland uh, I feel like Andrew Nichol is is similar to Alex Garland like he writes his own stuff and he directs his own stuff mm. I, I feel like he, he didn't get the recognition and it might have been like a timing thing but yeah probably you know you look you look through his body of films like. I haven't seen all of them. I, I really haven't seen any of them except this one. But uh, now I actually want to go and watch all of them. I've always wanted to see In Time with uh, Timberlake, uh, which is a science fiction film. And then Lord of War is a pretty highly regarded movie that stars uh, Nick Cage. And um, I was blown away that he wrote Truman Show. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah, exactly. And then he also did Good Kill, which also stars Ethan Hawke. It came out in uh, 2014. So – 
uh, definitely warrants uh, some more investigation. It's certainly going to happen on my part. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I this this movie, the level of detail, and, and again, speaking to Nickel, like is is fantastic in this movie, and really left no stone unturned. Used every budget dollar to get the look that he wanted, and he achieved it. And um, the Marin County Civic Center is mm. the building that they use to shoot, um, you know, for the the uh, the space headquarters, uh, which I think is pretty cool. And it was also designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, who we've, uh, you know, obviously touched on quite a bit in the um, the Hyperion episodes. So uh, really, really cool. I also really liked the um, just the the way it was shot. The use of light and shadow in this movie was fantastic, and um. I, I I thought it was really well done, the cinematography. And also the costuming, you know, it was sort of simple and fantastic. The whole film had a very simple, clean aesthetic to it, you know. And, and I'm a huge fan of time periods that are sort of ambiguous. Like you can't really tell when exactly it takes place. Like it takes place in the future, but the cars are electric, but they're very kind of 1960s, you know. And all the cops wear like these uh, J. Edgar you know, fedoras and trench coats and, you know, there's a lot, lot of lot, lot of really cool touches in this movie that really round out that world nicely. You just kind of blasted through a bunch of stuff there. Yeah, I did. I, I was trying to kind of, I don't know, keep it. I guess I was trying to keep it semi-short and sweet, but we can pause on any anyone you want. Beats and bulbs. It, it is a bit and it's a bulb. I just on the cinematography a bit, I saw some people talking about the – um the color palette and how like green is dangerous and red is good, which was interesting. Like kind in of this film, in this film, like red was kind of kind of connoted, had connotations for blood. And that was like the pure form of, you know, proving who you were and green is nature and like man's domination over nature. There's some really interesting kind of like kind of studies of it, which is kind of cool because it's a very strange color palette. You don't normally come across like strong red and green in uh, too many films. No, and there's nothing – like even those colors, when they are present, they don't really pop. The grays and the blacks are really what dominates the entire movie. Mm. You know, like uh, – If memory serves, you see a lot of green and red in their, uh, you know, the whatever operating system their computer term- terminals are mm. using. There's like tunnel, the tunnel lights and mm-hmm. – Speaking of tunnel lights, I really like the uh, road crossing scene. That was a notable scene I really dug. Hmm. Yeah, scary too. You kind of feel it. You're like there with him. Yeah, it's a good showcase of his drive. He's like, oh, fuck it. Here we go. <laughs> the whole don't save anything for the swim back kind of thing. Yeah, that concept. That was one of my notes, actually. I really dug the uh, the piano concert. Oh, yeah. The Plava Laguna 12-fingered uh, piano dude. Yeah, the reveal at the end where the, uh, the pianist is... Six fingers on each hand, and then the part where Inigo Montoya comes swinging in from the chandelier and says, <laughs> I am Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare, Prepare to, to die. <laughs> For a minute there, I actually confused Inigo Montoya with Enrico Palazzo, and I had no idea where you were going, but I'm so glad I came back to reality. Enrico <laughs> Palazzo. You mean Patricia Arquette's son, Enrico Palazzo. Yes, yes, exactly. I totally forgot about Inigo Montoya's extra digit. That's fantastic. He is the pianist. That would be so cool. Well, no, he didn't have the extra digit. The six-fingered man 
Christopher Guest had the extra digit. Inigo Montoya was hunting him down. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's a death right there. His father's murderer had six fingers. That that is a death. And it took it took me a minute to get that too. I didn't I didn't get where you were going right away. And that six finger gentleman was the pianist in this movie. <laughs> pianist. There you have it, folks. Some more uh, well oiled EBD theory craft. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody want a pianist? <laughs> that's Gattaca, everybody. And that's Gattaca. And everybody, it's also, I love the future. Everybody's smoking. Like, there's a lot of smoking. Why not? Like, yeah. Well, and it's just interesting that now when you see movies about the future, nobody smokes, you know, but like. Smoking was still cool in 1997, bro. Yeah, you're right. No, it's definitely cool in the 40s, which is the sort of, you know, the aesthetic vision of the movie. So, yeah, it worked well. Quick, quickly, the the score I really enjoyed. Mm, I, it was good. The, the theme, the main theme from this, the, you know, the opening theme from this film uh, is very much in my uh, DNA. Like it's it's uh, it's very memorable. You know, it's like as soon as I start to hear it, I just think of Gattaca and all that, all those fingernails falling on the floor. <laughs> <Just two laughs> fingernails. Yeah, it's haunting. We didn't uh, say the obvious, which is like one of the earlier pieces of trivia where. Gattaca is based on the four first letters of the genome, which is a... Ah, uh, you cool. cocksucker. Did I steal your nugget? Ah, I stole it. That's good. <laughs> um, you get it. Uh, wow. What's funny is I didn't really bother to confirm that. I was like, it just has to be. Yep, that's it, yeah. Well, all those letters are highlighted in all the names of the cast and the crew in the opening credits as well, and the and the closing credits, so... But you, uh, for whatever reason, when you were like, yeah, the score, like, we we kind of haven't talked about scores very much over the last, you know, yeah. 30, 40 episodes. We used to talk about them all the time. But for some reason, every once in a while, when you mention a score, I immediately flash back to Commando, where you guys were both were like, blink, 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 blink. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of get flashbacks to, to when we've nerded out on scores and it's nothing to yes, do with the price that, of milk, but it just I had that moment again. No, 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 no. That was a um that is a major that is a major that was a major nerd out, I'll tell you what. Uh for me and Jarhigo. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, we've had there's been a lot of good scores. We just keep I can't we keep kind of glazing keep over them. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. Go ahead. What were you gonna say, Ben? I was gonna say so A C G T are the uh, four types of bases found in the DNA molecule, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. There you go. We never finished it. <laughs> uh, that is a, that is very cool. Um, I always loved that. When I discovered that, I was like, wow, super awesome. Gattaca. Speaking of uh, DNA, I never picked up on the obvious, which was the use of spiral helical staircases in this. That was super obvious, but I was... Uh, oh, shit. I never noticed like, that oh, either. Yeah. Look at that. He climbed up oh, a... Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can't get up the top yeah. of his own spiral staircase because he's got a wheelchair. Yeah. His house was strangely not set up very well for somebody with a, you know. Yeah. Somebody in a wheelchair. How dare you, no, sir? Really he wasn't. injured himself. Was there was there even a lift in there that he could get upstairs and downstairs? He Maybe that's what he thought he was oh. doing. He thought he was getting in the lift, but he turned it out he torched himself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if I thought he was getting in the lift, it was like the dumb waiter, dude, because it was so small. Hey, man, you know, you do what you got to do. I ain't climbing that set of stairs again. Fuck it. Grab your man. after watching him do it to when uh, Irene came over. That was a cool little scene, too, where she comes in and plays along. I like that scene. Yeah, that was a really good scene. I liked, I liked how jaded he was in the beginning, you know, and he kept, like, 
letting Vincent know that he was better than him. Mm. You know, like all the time, like like he made a con- like when he was getting the contacts together for his um, for his eyes and changing the color, and he was like, "That's right, my eyes are prettier." <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> With a lot of stank on it, dude, you know? Well-crafted. It's a well-crafted film. Yeah, very much so. Really good, really seriously good Jude Law in this movie, man. Um, This might be one of his best things. I have such a soft spot for Enemy of the Gates, but it's a completely different movie. That's a really, yeah, that's a really, really good movie. He does really well in that movie. Nuggets, Death's ratings? Uh, Yes. Let's move on. I, I only have like one nugget, one or two. Go for it, brah. Nah, you go first. Jude Law's character asks to be called by his middle name, Eugene, which comes from the Greek word for well-born, which he is. Eugenics is the central theme of the film. Damn it. See, there's so many things I still have never put together about this movie. There's a lot of layers here. That's why this movie is so excellent. There's a whole bunch of stuff to all the names in this that I didn't really feel like digging into. But Well, Jerome is like genome, you know? like Yeah, and all kinds of stuff. Genome, genome, rather. Um, all right, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Tat for tat. I'll do. I'll do a nugget. Okay. Next. Okay. So I didn't realize this though. I was just uh, reading it on Wiki as we were going going through this stuff. The film, the working title was actually the Eighth Day, hmm. but like Genesis, which I think would have been a great title. But there was a Belgian film that had already been released in the U.S. under the title The Eighth Day when it came over here. And as a result, the film was retitled to Gattaca. And I like that just kind of blows me away. Like the eighth day is a great title for this movie, you know, for obvious reasons. But like I think Gattaca is a brilliant title for this Mm. movie. And when I found out about like what Ben just said, um, all the components of DNA and that's where the name comes from. I just like that just blew me away. It's genius. So the eighth day, like the book of Genesis, eighth, eighth day. Well, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, there there is no eighth day. There, no, no, I know. I just day. didn't know if it was eugenics. Yeah. You know, obviously, but or maybe not. Maybe not so obviously. But um, they should have changed it to the twenty fifth hour. Whoa! Yes, exactly. Whoa! Totally. I just think Gattaca is a really clever. It's clever. Uh, yeah, it's a really smart, inventive name for a movie about what it's about. You know, yeah, so yeah. to even to even find out that it had another name originally. That uh, was a cool name in and of itself. It was was uh, pretty excellent. Yeah, dog. There, go ahead, brah. Um, this was a bit of a like I don't know, silly, silly nugget, but kind of interesting. The public mm. address announcements uh, on occasion, on occasion, were in Esperanto, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, well, I, I read a little bit about that. Is that uh, is there anything to expand expound on in that? Uh, I mean, I think it just like Esperanto was just so of that. I don't know, that same kind of Ernest Borgnine, Gore Vidal, intellectual brutalism generation that I just think it's it's clever that they sprinkled it in there. It fits the aesthetic. It's very cool. All right, my last one. I, th- there's plenty of nuggets out there about this movie, but um, I'll, I'll use this one because this one kind of jumped out at me. Uh, and this is almost – I'm almost reading directly from Wiki. Uh, Rand Paul, the U.S. senator, uh, I believe is from Kentucky – used near verbatim portions of the plot summary from the English Wikipedia entry on Gattaca in a speech at Liberty University in 2013 in support of Virginia Attorney General uh, Ken Cuccinella's campaign for governor of Virginia. 
Paul was accusing pro-choice politicians of advocating eugenics in a manner similar to the events in Gattaca. So uh, pretty cool and interesting that this movie came, um, is literally used as an example mm. in a situation not unlike that. So uh, yeah, that yeah, was pretty I interesting. Don't know much about it. I, I know that NASA considers it one of the more sci- most scientifically accurate film ever. So I suppose it makes sense that he's used it as an example here and there. Right. We didn't touch on this in the uh, early part of the show, but I didn't realize that how much of a flop this movie was. So it's it fits firmly into the cult classic uh, category mm. where it lost no doubt 15 20 mil. It's like a 38 million budget and it made 15, so it's uh, disappointing. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, people want to see fucking comic book movies. They don't want to see movies they have to think in, but still it's it's a shame. I'm trying to think, like, what else came out around this year? You know, like, this is probably when... <clears throat> it got beaten you know, by people... Devil's Advocate in seven Ugh. years in Tibet's third week and stuff. So like, there was some interesting stuff around the time, but... Yeah, I just, you know, also this, like, for science fiction at this time, it was probably more like pew-pew lasers and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, superheroes were not around yet. You know, no, maybe no. Spider- Spider-Man was about to come out. But, yeah, there wasn't really anything going on there. So, not surprised. Um, shame. Because it's such an excellent movie. And, it, and I'm very happy to see that it's garnered a cult following. Because that's really the best thing that can happen to any film or, you know, sort of property like that, in my opinion. Agreed. You know? That's it. That's all I got. Same. What else you got, Chad? That's it. Deaths. And then you ruined Benny's one nugget that he's had in like eh. a month. So that was great. Nice job. You know, we need to put a death down for that. Because that was like a... You just full on... You full on greased him. You just want to kill Benny. Well, there you go. There's a segue into deaths. Deaths. Uh, I ejected on Ethan Hawke. You had a Star Wars death. Uh, I had a, a hearty giggle about Tony Shalhoub that uh, nobody cared about <laughs> but me. <laughs> I also died by misremembering uh, um, the six-fingered man from uh, Princess Bride. That is true. And then Inigo uh, Montoya was Enrico Palazzo. Yeah, the, I don't know <laughs> if that was a death, but I'll take one if you want. It doesn't bother me. I'll double down. I thought that was the death of which you spoke. So yeah, maybe. maybe. No, I was more. I thought Enrique, uh, Enrico Palazzo had six fingers, Inigo Montoya, but it was the six fingered man. So that was where the death was in my mind. Yeah, and then Ben was killed by inconceivable. Exactly. Ooh, nice Wallace Shawn, dude. That was tight, man. Oh, and then just the other, just to wrap that up, that Ben was killed by Chad in a in a nug sniping incident. Yeah, that yeah. Live in infamy. Let's see it. Ratings? Uh, this movie gets a 10. There you go. No question about it. It's it's just everything we already said. It's a cult classic now. It's The cast is just rich with excellent actors. The writing is fantastic. The directing is fantastic. The cinematography is excellent. The color palette is great. I, I, the retro future look, the detail in the movie. I, I just – I love this movie and it, it never really gets old. I – Definitely feel Ben's like, you know, kind of tired of dystopia comment for sure. But as a film, this movie is, it's up there. It's so good. Any science fiction fan or any fan of this, these sorts of topics, you should watch this movie. That's it. Bada bing. Bada Ben. Did you just say bada Ben? Yeah. Is that a death? Uh, nothing, nothing stuck out at me enough to uh, fire up the improbability drive. 
mm. on this one. But um, I guess I'll just say it's a, it's a really good movie. I think it might be a little overrated, um, but it is really a good movie, um, despite the fact that I'm kind of not into, uh, yeah, as Kev said, bored of dystopia and the fact that it's a little bit slow paced and I've already seen it. Um, I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. It's still a great rating. Yeah, totally reasonable. Um, no, it's a really good movie. I just think it might be a little overrated by some. <laughs> and do you think it's overrated, like looking back at it, or do you think it's overrated of the time as well? I've look, people gush about this movie, mm. um, and you know, somewhat rightfully so, but somewhat I don't not. know that it's worthy of all the praise that it gets. Mm. He's, trying, he's trying to he's trying to diss me without saying. No, anything. that's totally reasonable. <laughs> that's totally reasonable. I I kind of felt quite similar. To be honest, like going into it, you're like, yeah, it's just pretty good, you know. And then I got through the film. It was like, yeah, it holds up pretty well and kind of had glimmers of what you were saying of like, should I heap as much praise on it as I do? Maybe not. And then like that layer of my own personal life and like the decisions of the last few years with my kids came into it. And it just kind of added a whole new experiential layer onto it for me. So it's, I, I suppose like in a very personal sense, like the changes in my life have have given me an opportunity to experience it in a different way. So I feel like that added to it for me, but that's a very individual thing. So I like that. That's happened on a lot of films that we've done. Like our, our, our opinion when we were younger was one thing and then it's very different now. Good mm. sometimes and bad sometimes. And I, I love that. Yeah. That that happens on the show, you know, and it's part of the reason why I like revisiting books and movies and stuff is because like, you know, what I might not have understood as a kid reading a really complicated book. I read the book as an adult and like, you know, whatever book it might be. And you're like, oh, I totally get it now. But as far as this is concerned, uh, it was previously on the algorithm at like a mid six. So it's out of the fives already. And then I kind of feel like for me, it, it went up a bit as opposed to down a bit. So I'm giving this Whoa, one. A... We've got an unprecedented situation here, folks. <laughs> we're, we're higher than a five. I'd be giving it a seven point two. This is this is this is a film that moved up the algorithm. That has literally never happened. Doesn't it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. See what I mean? Overrated. Oh yeah, there you go. Nice tie in, man. I like what you did there. I couldn't quite like bring myself to place it above, you know, twelve monkeys or moon or those kind of movies. But um yeah, it's in the neighborhood of like Red October. So you don't think it's in the same company as Moon or 12 Monkeys? Uh, they're just above it. And then like okay. Red October and Born Identity. Enemy at the Gates mm. is actually below it. So it's in good company. I, 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 I think it's a well-crafted film. It's impressive as a debut, even though like there's mm. tons of narration in it, which is a bit of a cop-out. Like the, the, the cast and crew did a really good job. And um, there's not a lot to fault, is. you know? No, there's not. And, I, I, you know, just as a sidebar, like, Andrew Nichol did a ton of commercial work. He, he was like Ridley Scott. Like, he, he did commercials for, like, 10 years. Then mm. he started doing films. So, like, for this, like, by the time this guy got to his debut film, he knew what he wanted to do. Like, he knew how to dial it in and make it look good. So Knowing yeah, what you want to do and then executing debut. on it is kind of a different thing. So it's pretty impressive still. I, I agree with you. I'm just saying that that definitely lent to – the, yeah. the debut being so good, you know, that's all. So, yeah, it's not a five. There you go. Nice. Excellent. I'm glad we did this one. I think your rating was all due to pressure from the Stallones. <laughs> you think so? 
<laughs> Fuck, I got to start rating things higher. I kind of like rating things a five because it's like perfectly in line with the Stallones, to be honest. I like it. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I know. Uh, well, if we go by that, then I'm going to be president and everybody's going to be drinking Barefoot Brunos and that's going to be mandatory. So we got that mm-hmm. to look forward to. I'm down. At least at least the Barefoot Brunos. <laughs> Bring me the Clamato, dude. Yeah, baby. Uh, I want to give a shout out. I went to have my car serviced yesterday and – um, one of the gals that was working there proudly displayed on her desk was a very large jar of water with it was lighted from underneath and it had a xenomorph head in it. And I took one look at that and I was like, that is awesome. You're my kind of nerd. I did. I said, you are. I said, do you listen to podcasts? And she said, not really. And I said, you're literally my exact demographic. I was like, we do this nerdy kind of podcast and she got all excited about that and uh, as we were talking she um, revealed that she was a huge horror movie fan probably a little bit more than a science fiction fan but she ran over and grabbed this fantastic looks like a book mary shelley's frankenstein but it, it lights up and it's like a usb light that plugs into your computer it's just it's so nerdy and so fantastic and i love that she had two of them and kept one of them at work and she gave me one of them, and I, I was so touched by that. So I had to give Sam uh, at the Hyundai dealer a shout-out because uh, that was – Wait, so that's a... – <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck was going on, but it's a book that's got a USB plug on it. <laughs> I love it. She has two, two and she keeps she one at work. She has two. That's it keeps amazing. going at work, and it was so nerdy. The whole thing was just like so nerdtastic. I, uh, I was just overjoyed, and that was right when I got into the dealership. So, right, <laughs> it really just set 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 the pace for a really pleasant experience. Well, so, nerd high fives, thank you, Sam, madam. Yeah, nerd high fives. There you go. And that's all I got for shoutouts. Uh, algorithm. What do we got going on next week, dude? I am pleased to announce that we will be doing Star Trek Four: The Whale Movie next week. Oh, oh, yes. And if that don't cheer you up, nothing will. I'm going to record the whole thing speaking into my mouse. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Computer. Computer. Beautiful. How do we know he didn't invent the thing? <laughs> anyway. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, join us next week for Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, arguably one of the best. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode on Gattaca. Hope we didn't melt your brain there in the beginning. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Eugene Chef, farewell. Eugene Chef, farewell. <laughs> That's kind of a death, but whatever. That's all right. And that's going to wrap up this week's episode. If you'd like to check out the show notes for this episode, you can do so in your podcast app of choice or at our website, ebd.fm forward slash episodes forward slash 95. If you'd like to support our wonderful show, you can at the very least take the mustache quiz. (laughs) Good call. You can also rate us and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. You can also support us on Patreon. We have a Patreon now. Patreon.com forward slash EBD podcast. We like money. Yeah, we like money. You can also um, tell a friend to check out the show. 
your one friend. Everybody's got one friend. I have two. I have Ben and Jordan. Jordan Ego and Ben Rear. <laughs> I was trying to hold it together. I can't. This is getting too humorous. I have two friends. I have Jarhigo and I have Ben. So I'm fucking <laughs> lost. I'm trying to do this one. straight because I think it'll be funny. But... Folks, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Gattaca. And stay tuned next week as we tackle something that I already completely forgot. <laughs> Check for the whale movie. So long, folks. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Star Trek for the whale movie. And that's going to do it. We'll see you next time, folks. You fucking flat foot. Beedy, beedy, beedy. Stop into it.